Welcome to Linda's Corner. My name is Linda Bjork, and today we're going to be talking about peace, hope, connection, and humanity. I'm delighted to welcome special guest John Noltner. John is an award-winning photographer and storyteller who has just been on a 40,000-mile road trip. You can reach John and pre-order his new book at broadleafbooks.com, and I'll include a link in the description. Welcome, John. I'm so glad that you could join with me today. Yeah, thanks, Linda. I'm really happy to be with you. Okay, so let's talk about this trip. So the circumference of the Earth is a little under 25,000 miles, and you have been on a 40,000-mile trip, which means you have more than circumnavigated the globe one and a half times. That is a long drive. So what prompted this trip? What made you decide to do it? Yeah, uh, so so apparently I'm not the most efficient route planner because I managed those 40,000 miles all within the continental U.S. Do you know, it's but actually the, easier to drive there than over the oceans, I've heard. So Well, sure, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, and, and this was not all at one time. This was, this was a series of trips over a couple of years okay. that led to this. Um, the goal was twofold. Um, the first was that I've, I've always worked as a freelance photographer, shooting for national magazines and Fortune 500 companies. Um, I was getting frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue. This, this whole idea started back in 2008. I was, I was worried about all the things that ask us to look at what can separate us. Um, and I wondered if there was something I could do with my photography and storytelling instead to remember what connects us. And so this... This was sort of the, the, the thought process in it. Um, the other thing that happened about that time is I like to say the economy handed me some free time. Uh, the, 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 recession, the recession hit the world of freelance photography really hard. And, um, and this is what I did with my free time. If I would have been a business, better business person, I might have looked for new clients. But instead, you know, I, I have always believed that some jobs feed the belly and some jobs feed the soul. And my, my belly had been well-fed, but my soul was getting hungry. And so when I was presented with this free time, this is what I started doing with it. And I started asking people this really simple question, what does peace mean to you? And we would do a, an hour-long recorded interview. Uh, we would do a portrait because I'm a photographer. And then we started combining these stories and these images into a body of work that could help us remember the common humanity that connects us. I love everything about that. That is incredible. I appreciate that your goal is to find out what connects us. That idea of separation and of looking for things bothers me as well. I see so much division and it is does not it cannot possibly lead to good places. But when we look for unity and what connects us, there's always something. You know, you and I are going to be very different, and that's absolutely okay. But if you were to draw a little Venn diagram, there's going to be an overlap. There is a place where you and I can connect. There is a place where we're going to have some common ground. And that's going to be true with whoever it is that we visit with. So that is amazing. I also love your creativity and your positivity in, in finding something to do with what you call your free time. I thought that was a very amazing thing. There are some people who would just, you know, panic and hide up in a corner and say, what was me and what am I going to do and how am I going to pay the bills? And you thought, oh, wow, this is an opportunity to feed my soul. 
So what a beautiful outlook you have. No wonder you're such an amazing photographer. Well, now, I don't want to suggest that there was not worry and woe is me and concern about how the bills that entered into the process. <laughs> there was certainly that. So you're um, mortal. That's good to know. Yeah, I am mortal. I'm human like everybody else. But that didn't have to define the experience. You know, it was, I have a friend who's a contractor, and every time he runs into a problem, he calls it an opportunity. And I think this absolutely was an opportunity. Uh, we just had to figure out how to use it well. Wow. And it sounds like you did. What a beautiful question of what does peace mean to you? So how did you decide who you're going to ask? Because there were quite a few homes along the route of, you know, 40,000 miles or so. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and this is, of course, the challenge because you, you go into Manhattan and you have time for two or three interviews before you move on to the next place. And uh, there's more than two or three houses. <laughs> yeah, there are more than two or three houses in Manhattan, as it turns out. Uh, so so know. the process, and I'll, I'll back up a little further, and I'll tell you that the first body of work was created in Minnesota, which was my own backyard. So that was, that was the first 50 or so interviews before I started doing this on a national level. And so my model, every place I would go, was to connect with someone who could serve as an advocate, who could serve as an ally, and who had an understanding of the local community. So sometimes that was a friend of mine, sometimes it was a journalist, sometimes it was uh, just a natural connection, a friend of a friend of a friend. But I would try to find a person who understood the value of storytelling, who appreciated what a piece of my mind was trying to do, and I would articulate to them what I was looking for. You know, I've been talking to too many men. I really need a female voice. I've been talking to too many older people. I really need a younger voice. I'm down in, you know, Alabama. I want to talk to someone with a civil rights background in history. So I would I would share all of that with them and sort of give them my wish list. And then I would say, who do you know? And sometimes they would know somebody who fit that particular demographic. Sometimes they would come out of left field and present me with this wonderful, unexpected surprise. Um... And always in my process, uh, besides the interviews that I would have lined up, I also uh, left room for happy accidents. You know, so so sometimes serendipity is a little bit smarter than I can be. And so uh, I always try to leave room in my schedule for these really organic and interesting and natural connections that just happen when you're out on the road and make space for those interviews as well. That is amazing. So between just your personal connections, you were able to find people throughout the United States? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example. I was going down to Alabama, um, and I don't know, this was 2014, 15, um, and I had an interview lined up with a gentleman who had been active in the civil rights movement back in the day. Uh, just before, the day before I got down there, the interview fell apart. You know, oh, no. he was he was busy. A conflict came up in his schedule and he had to cancel. So I literally threw it out on social media and said, hey, does anybody know anybody in Alabama that I could talk to? Which I understand is a really low bar, but I wanted to be I wanted to be productive. And two different people from different parts of my life suggested, hey, you should find a woman named Joanne Bland in Selma. Wait, and the, the two different people both came up with the same name? Yeah, yeah. And these, these two people, one was a college connection, one was a recent work connection, and both of them said, hey, you should look up this woman named Joanne Bland. Well, oh, tell me about Joanne. Out, what is I'm she like, like, yeah, I guess I have to do that. So I, I, I 
found her phone number. I Googled her name. I found her phone number and I called her up and I said, hey, what are the chances you have a few hours free tomorrow? And she said, yeah, come on over. And Joanne Bland marched with Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery when she was 11 years old. Uh, as they were marching to Montgomery for voter rights. Uh, I, it happened to be, I, was sit, I, I wound up sitting in her living room 12 days after Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri. And so it turned into this really um, raw and emotional and powerful interview about how, you know, we've not really yet gotten uh, where she set out to get when she was a little girl. You know, we've not really finished the work that they set out to do all the these dream. years ago. And this was, I mean, this essentially fell in my lap because uh, because of just asking people for connections. Who do you know? Who should I talk to? Who's got an interesting story? Um, and that happens pretty regularly. Wow. That's amazing. And part of that probably is because you opened yourself up to the possibility. And part of it is because you reached out and asked for some help. That is yeah, incredible. We, we like to say that we walk through the doors that open to us, but sometimes you have to knock on the doors pretty hard <laughs> to get someone to answer. <laughs> that is amazing. So now you're talking about a couple of different trips. And one. at what point did you sell your house and do it like committed thing? <laughs> a committed thing. That sounds like an interesting way to say it. Well, we, so, maybe there's a better way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so here is the arc of the project. So... The project is called A Piece of My Mind, P-E-A-C-E. The new book that we have coming out is called Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America. So in 2008, the economy handed me free time. I started the project. I did my first book in Minnesota. Uh, We released a second book from these 40,000 miles across the country in 2016. Then it was a year ago, October, that my wife and I decided to go all in. You know, I had been really busy with programming uh, because I've got these four traveling exhibits that we bring around the country and we use these story tell, th- these stories to talk about conflict resolution and civic responsibility and social change. So we go to colleges and conferences and high schools and community centers and faith communities. Um, I was going 100 miles an hour in 2019. I think I was in 20 states and on four continents and as a result, wow. uh, my wife and I did not see each other so much. I was gone, I think, 180 days, and that's <gasps> not why we got married. You know, oh. we kind of like each other. She didn't come and, with you then, I'm assuming, for 180 no, she was, days. No, she was working a job like most people. Ah. And so I was on, I was on the road. Uh, we decided that that was not sustainable long term. So we made the choice that she was going to quit her job. Uh, come on the road with me as we did this programming because it turns out we could afford two out of three things we could afford to lose her income we could afford to uh, buy our own health insurance or we could afford to make a house payment we could do two of those things but not all three of them so we decided to bail on the house payment uh, have her quit her job and come on the road with me and we buy our own health insurance so this was the plan and we were going to go from exhibit to exhibit and program to program well then covid shut all that down everything i did was public programming uh so we had to scratch our heads a little bit and figure out how that was going to work eventually we retooled a piece of my mind as a nonprofit. we ran a fundraising campaign and had about 400 people that said yeah we think this is a good idea we'll help support you 
which was enough for us to then sell the house, buy an RV, and we've been on the road now full-time um, since last October. Wow, that is amazing. What and a beautiful story. We, oh, I'm sorry. Since, mm-hmm. since we can't do the public programming right now, it looks like it might come back this fall, but we're just focused on gathering new stories, just focused on gathering new content. So we're traveling and interviewing people right now who are looking for creative solutions to our most challenging issues. And you practice what you preach, because didn't you come up with a creative solution to some problems? And then when a new set of problems came, and you came up with another creative solution. So There has been some resiliency and some reinvention that's happened along the way. Yeah, for sure. So what were some of your surprises that you had, and what were some of your favorite stories? Mm. You know, I... um... I had the, I mean, some of these get are pretty challenging subjects, you know, for this book that's just coming out, I, I, I share several of the stories. It's sort of a combination of my own personal journey and finding a path forward, as well as the wisdom of the people that I've encountered along the way. And so, you know, when, when I was driving an exhibit out to New York University, um, happened to be driving right by the exit for Newtown, Connecticut, right after the shooting happened at Sandy Hook. And so, you know, as we drove by the exit, um, there were little candles in the snow. There were flags for each of the of the victims. And I knew that I wanted to interview somebody who had been touched by public violence. But I also knew that I didn't want it to be Sandy Hook because that was, it, it had only happened a week or so before. Too raw. It was too raw. I felt like the family members were being pulled out in front of the media and beat up for a soundbite here and there. And I wanted something with a little bit more context. So later that summer, I happened to be going through Oklahoma and I was able to connect with Bud Welsh in Oklahoma City. And uh, in 1995, his only child, Julie Marie, um, graduated from Marquette University and she was fluent in five languages. And she got a job with the Social Security Administration in Oklahoma City in the Murrow Federal Building. And four months later, Timothy McVeigh blew it up. And so Julie Marie and um, 185 other people died that day. And Bud fell apart, you know, as you would expect. He became an alcoholic. He lost his businesses. He really wanted nothing more than for Timothy McVeigh to be executed. Uh, just get him off the face of the earth so that I can get on with my life. And uh, until he saw a news clip with Timothy McVeigh's father on television, And he looked at that man and he said, that guy is as wrecked as I am. You know, his life changed on the same day that mine did. And um, that's when Bud realized that he wanted to meet Timothy McVeigh's father at some point and tell him that he didn't hold him responsible. It wasn't his fault what had happened. And it took about three years, but eventually he wound up at the McVeigh family house sitting around the kitchen table with Tim's dad, all the family pictures up on the wall, including one of Timothy McVeigh. And Bud said that was the day he realized he didn't want Tim to be executed and he wanted to forgive him. And so he started working against the execution of Timothy McVeigh. He didn't succeed. McVeigh was executed pretty quickly, but Bud realized um, that he got no sense of relief. He got no sense of peace from the loss of one more life. And so now he goes around the world working against capital punishment. And for, for me, those sorts of stories, those stories of 
of incredible hardship where people are able to find some sort of grace and forgiveness and healing to move through it um, are the stories that continue to inspire me and the stories that continue to, to move me. And it, it happens um, all the time, whether it's someone who's a Holocaust survivor or who has been through the prison system or who has a terminal diagnosis, whatever those hardships are, there are people who are choosing grace and hope and the belief that something better is possible. And those are the stories that continue to inspire and surprise me. I love that. And as we're looking for inspiration, those really are the things that come. And it's interesting as you're going through your um, your search for stories, it's not what a lot of people search for, which is tell me the latest gossip on the, you know, the movie stars or something like that. These are real people with real stories. And it's interesting. I've heard that it is, you know, we can impress people with our strengths, but we impact people through our weaknesses. It is through our stories, our struggles, those things that we have overcome that help to be able to uh, build and uplift and strengthen the people around us as we're all going on this journey of life. And even though our experiences are very different, the feelings that we have can be very similar, like that need to forgive. I mean, who, who is out there who hasn't been hurt by someone? And to see, well, they, when they were uh, just consumed with that hatred and that need for vengeance, how did that affect their life? How, how did it turn out? And when they chose to forgive, how did that affect their life? Because when we have hard things happen to us, sometimes it's very hard to forgive and to move forward because sometimes we feel like it robs justice. And when you come to that, the real realization that when you forgive the person that you're helping is yourself, then it changes yeah. things. And sometimes yeah, seeing someone change. else example helps us to have the courage to make those kinds of choices. So that's beautiful. I love it. Well, you know, that's that's what we continue to look for is people who, who are finding those creative and grace-filled responses to the world around them. And we're trying to amplify those and use that for our model for how we can move forward. That's beautiful. So besides the path of forgiveness and grace, what, what kinds of, you talk about creative solutions. Are, are there some kind of a pattern for creative solutions that's, that can work for our society as a whole that we can become more unified? Um, yeah, I wish it was a, a simple three easy steps to fixing the world. It probably is a little more complicated than that. But, Dang it. but let me let me uh, let me share one more creative solution with you, uh, and then um, there are some themes that have bubbled up through this process, and there are sort of some takeaways I hope people will get, and we we can talk about that later. But I want to I'll just quickly share with you a man that I met in. Detroit, Michigan. His name was John George. And he, he told a story about living next to a crack house. And he, you know, he did everything. He had little kids at home. He didn't want to live in that sort of situation. So he did everything he could think of to change the situation. He called the police department. He called City Hall. And nobody would or could do anything about it. So John thought about moving. You know, he's like, I don't want to raise my kids in this environment. But then he said, wait a minute, I pay my taxes, I mow my lawn, I take out the garbage. This is my home. I don't want to go anywhere. So instead, he went to the hardware store and he bought plywood, nails and paint. 
And he came home and he boarded up the windows and the doors of the crack house. And when the drug dealers came back, they couldn't get in. So they just kept driving. And that that worked out pretty good for John. And he, he could have stopped. <laughs> he could have stopped right there, but he didn't. And instead, he started convincing his neighbors to do the same thing. You know, if there was an abandoned building, if there was a, a, a rundown home. Um, and eventually he started this nonprofit called Motor City Blightbusters. And now they have 10,000 volunteers a year and they'll tear down abandoned houses. They'll replace them with community gardens and community orchards. So they've taken what used to be a liability in the community and they flipped them to, the, to an asset. And um, John says that we're out to change the world and we're starting in Detroit, which I think is a pretty bold statement. But I also think he might be able to do it. That is amazing. But, but he also said that we all know what the problems are and there are many. But to continue to look at the problems and not also look for a solution is a mistake. Absolutely. And I think that's the spot where we get stuck so often. We get we get so stuck in the problem that we're not able to take the next step to look for a solution. And again, those those are the voices that we hope to amplify in order to give hope and serve as a model for how we can do better together. How lovely. And isn't it interesting that we typically find what we're focused on, what we're looking for? So if we're looking for a solution, we're a lot more likely to find a solution than if we're just looking and complaining about the problems. Turns out. <laughs> Turns out that's the case, yeah. Very much so. So what were some of these these themes that you talked about? How how and really that's what I meant. I know you can't solve the world in three easy steps, but but some of those those themes that are just universal, that regardless of what situation we have, by following these kinds of things, then it makes a difference. Yeah, I mean there are there are three things that I come back again and again to as my process for this type of storytelling. But there are also themes that come back again and again in these stories that I hear from people. And I think that they're, they're universal tools in how to move through conflict and universal tools in how to live better together. And the first is to listen deeply. You know, we will listen often in order to respond or refute, to correct, coerce, or convince individuals. But the, the simple act of listening just to understand can be rare. And so what I've found in this process is that when you will create a space where people feel heard, that they'll share really powerful and vulnerable things. And so listen deeply. The second one is to be willing to challenge your own expectations. You know, we all carry biases in our life and they're really easy to spot in other people and they're a little harder to recognize in ourselves. But, but for me, this willingness to challenge those expectations, to... Uh, do some honest and earnest self-reflection and understand sort of what's welling up in you and and why and be willing to challenge that and open the space to see to see new possibilities. So listen deeply, challenge your own expectations. And the third one, and this is one I think we forget a lot, is to commit to show up at the table again and again. You know, so many times people say things like, oh, I tried that. That didn't work. I'm done. Or they'll say, oh, this conversation about race was really hard. I'm not sure I want to do that again. You know, I think all of these problems, whether we're talking about race, class, gender, ethnicity, faith, 
politics, whatever it is, all of these problems are going to be long-term solutions if we're going to find a path forward. And that's going to require us to return to the table again and again and keep showing up and doing the hard work of building relationship, of building that foundation. And so that's the, that's the third one. So listen uh, deeply, um, challenge, challenge your expectations. own expectations and keep showing up at the table. Okay. So those are the three things. And you know, that is almost like three easy steps to solving the world. And yet, it is. We should make a bumper sticker, I think, shouldn't we? <laughs> and yet they're hard because we don't always do those things. And yeah, sometimes yeah, they're, with they're our... easy theories. They're hard in practice. Yeah. But that's why it's called practice, because you have to try again and again. Yes. And that's like the showing up to the table thing again and again. And our expectations, those things that we have in our minds, are often we don't even recognize them. They seem so normal and so natural that we think anybody who doesn't have that same paradigm, that same mindset is wrong, obviously, because they're not thinking what I'm thinking. The way I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah. So that is amazing. Well, what a beautiful, amazing story. And I'm so glad that you are looking for solutions and that you are sharing those solutions and those stories to uplift and inspire i i really appreciate what you're doing well the 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 great irony of it is that um you know that winds up feeding me in the process feeding my soul you know this process of surrounding yourselves with people who are looking for these creative solutions you know if we surround ourselves with toxic folks and folks who are always um you know looking for problems turns out that's contagious a little bit. But when you f- surround yourself with people who believe that something better is possible, turns out that's contagious as well. Uh, and so you start, it, it starts to become an exercise. It starts to become a meditation and a mindset to um, intentionally seek out and find those things. And eventually that just becomes a habit. That is fantastic. I've heard that we're not supposed to be looking necessarily for like-minded people. He says you can do that if you're just in a group of people who are all complaining. You're all like-minded. We're supposed to be surrounding ourselves with growth-minded people. People like you're suggesting who are looking for those positive solutions. Because the voices that we hear are, are the voices that run through our head. And that's kind of, it's going to influence us for good or for bad. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. That was amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining with me today. I really have enjoyed our visit. Yeah, it's good to talk with you. Thanks for giving me the chance. It has been a pleasure. In closing, I'd like to share a quote by the Dalai Lama. He said, Do not let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace. Today, I invite you to choose peace, regardless of the choices, opinions, or actions of others. See you next time on Linda's Corner.